0: The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa. Hello, I'm Faker Others, and welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. England finish Group A in style and continue with their plan to resurrect record breakers as Russo turns heads and they celebrate by dancing like a man in a striped t-shirt in a random bar. We also know their quarterfinal opponents despite sleeping through Spain's win over Denmark in the group of slow, painful death. Susie Rack's predictions continue to go awry as Norway crash out at the hands of Austria. We'll wrap up all the games, take your questions and that's today's Guardian women's football weekly the guardian women's football weekly is supported by visa a proud sponsor of uefa women's euro 2022 during uefa women's euro 2022 visa will celebrate individual excellence by sponsoring the play of the match trophy awarded to the player who displays amazing skill and determination in each game. The player of the match trophy champions the values of female empowerment, diversity and equality, which are the driving forces behind Visa's work in supporting women's football. Find out more at theguardian.com all hyphen win. Uh, Susie Rack, speaking of you, no career for you in predictions. However, maybe one as an artist or a star of the <laughs> next great British Bake Off or a late night radio host or maybe a kid's party planner.
1: Yeah, all of the above. I'll take all of those. They're not bad jobs to have on the side, are they?
0: No, they certainly are not. I tell you what, that picture that you drew of Ellen White, it actually looked like the original that had been done. It was fantastic. Thanks. Thanks
1: sketched on the hotel bed with a cheap throwaway biro. Not traced. Not traced. Not traced. Johnny Lou, I promised
0: you that I'd ask you this one. Why does Dimitri Vandenberg seem to love Blackpool so much?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, this is Dimitri Vandenberg, who has won the World Match Play Darts. Two years ago, uh, and, and and was runner up last year, and, and started again with a humongous victory over Callum Ridge last night, and then on the first night at the Winter Gardens, I, I will. My, my theory is that the Winter Garden, in, in short, is that a proper darts crowd. It's, it's the only real darts crowd that predates the whole da, 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 da era, and I think it were a more it a more purist style of playing. And Dimitri Vandenberg, he's not a, he's not a huge uh, crowd player. He's just got a very metronomic throw, a beautiful action. And I think uh, the setting suits him better. That's my darts analysis. And, uh, and that's the end of my darts analysis for the day.
0: Well, it was wonderful darts analysis. I didn't understand half of it. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, but you decided that you were going to watch the darts because Spain, Denmark was so dull.
2: I didn't actually watch the dart. That, that was a joke. I mean, I, it was it was because Spain Denmark was dragging a little, and so I made a little joke on the group. You know, I switched over to the darts. I hadn't actually switched over to the darts. I I am. I do have a semblance of, of professionalism still.
0: Okay, I don't really know who's running the Guardian. Well, we've got the two big hitters of Susie Rack and Johnny Lu on the pod today. Uh, maybe Tamsin Connor can step in—a debut host of uh, the Two Girls Talk Balls podcast. Tamsin, how have you been enjoying the Euros so far?
3: Yeah, it's been amazing. Um, obviously, we've got to quite a few games, been darting around the north, but yeah, really good start. Uh, really happy, excited for the uh, for what's to come.
0: Absolutely. You are repping the north today. Uh, Right, 16 games in and England became the first away side to win at the Euros, even though they're technically the only home side. Um, I don't really understand that, but I don't really understand a lot of what UEFA do. Uh, Let's start with England-Northern Ireland, shall we? A 5-0 win for England to break the record for most goals scored by a team in the group stage of a women's Euros, 14 with zero reply. Uh, Tough news, though, for the team before this kicked off, Susie. Serena Wiegmann testing positive for COVID-19. Probably wasn't ever that much of a concern for this game, but what does it mean for the build-up to the quarter final?
1: Good question. Um, The FA said yesterday that actually she's doing a lot better. She watched open training from a distance with a mask on. I think it was, you know, the players that played did a part recovery session and the players that didn't play played a full session and apparently she's doing much better because I think she was quite ill with it at first it's obviously not ideal to have your manager get COVID mid-tournament but sort of if it was going to happen this is kind of the best time for it to happen in that you've got this five-day gap between the Northern Ireland game and the quarterfinal that sort of give a little bit of breathing room and make it potentially possible for her to be back in time for it. Given that, with the other COVID absences that England have had, they've sort of come back within that time frame. Obviously, as, you know, she's a manager; she's not necessarily uh, an elite athlete in her twenties. But you'd like to think that she should be back in time for that quarterfinal. They're taking loads of extra precautions. They've cancelled her family day today. They're not testing like blanketly. Um, they're still following you over protocol where you're in the test with symptoms. But I think, you know, it's completely likely that COVID has gone through the entire camp and squad by now when they've had Alex Greenwood, Ellen White, Serena, Lotta all out at some point with COVID. I think you've probably either got a lot of immunity within the squad. Quite a lot of them have had them as being like well publicised over the last year or a few symptomless players as well. So I, like, yeah. She should be back. I don't think it's too big of a worry for the quarterfinals.
2: Has Wigman got herself like a tactical COVID at the end of the (laughs) (laughs) group? got those antibodies in for the dead rubber and and now she's immune for the rest of the tournament.
1: Smart move, unlike Netherlands.
0: Yeah, exactly. Her assistant, Iron Vurink, said to me that she'd actually planned for it in terms of she had a contingency plan if she were to get... COVID. So, I mean, talk about meticulous planning, but I suppose, as you say, Susie, it was kind of going around the group. I would have expected that they might test Mary Earps a bit more, bearing in mind she was with Serena for the press conference, interviewed as well, and swapping microphones left, right and centre. It's, I mean, look, it's here to stay, isn't it? It's, uh, and, and thankfully, she wasn't affected too badly by it, and neither were the players, because a 5-0 win, and they topped the group in style, Tamsin, and it was a gorgeous atmosphere as well at St Mary's from both sets of fans. They really made the most of the the derby, the Northern Ireland fans in the far corner, all resplendent in green. It kind of speeds everything up as well if there's only one national anthem to have to go through.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think Northern Ireland have given a good show of themselves in the competition so far, and I think the fans have been, you know, really supportive. Although at times smaller in number, loud in voice, and uh, you know, and very, very good at that, and supporting their team. And I think obviously Northern Ireland haven't. Well, they probably have got out of it what they wanted to. I think that they've put on good performances despite their results. So. I don't think that they can, you know, be too disappointed with 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 walking away. I think who did the interview with Rachel Furness, which was absolutely brilliant, and she spoke really, really well, and I think, you know, will engage lots of people. But um, yeah, England absolutely rampant and uh, cutthroat. I think after the thirty nine minutes, of course.
0: Yeah, same starting lineup as well from Serena Viegman, Johnny. Um, she did this before with the Netherlands. There are pros and cons to both, I would say, but is this a bit risky?
2: I think there's certainly an element of hubris to it. You know, there are two ways of looking at it. You could see it as an opportunity to to test out a few fringe players to give your main players a rest, but also, I guess, to I guess show off what you you know the bench strength. And we all talked about England's bench strength. It would have been an opportunity for that. That's, I guess, what the protocol demands. But but England kind of ripped up that that Northern Ireland protocol. And um, in terms of momentum, I think that's what what Vegan was talking about. And if there's no physical issues with the squad and you know you should you should really be able to play six games in um what is, what is it 25 days i don't think it does the squad any harm to you know carry on drilling those those combinations and and to get in more match practice and look, there were, there were plenty of changes in the second half so I, I again i don't think freshness is going to be an issue i certainly don't think stay on is going to be an issue 13 goals in, in the last two games suggest they're right on it so i can see why they kept an unchanged side and i, I think the maybe the the result sort of indicates in there.
0: 14 goals, actually, and absolutely incredible. And one of those goals was from Fran Kirby, who played her first full 90 minutes in in quite a long time and got the opener, obviously. The Northern Ireland defence were solid for that first 39 minutes. But you described Fran in your piece as arguably English football's only real genius on either the women's or men's side. What do you see that she offers this team that no one else can?
2: Like we've we've all played football, right? And when when a ball goes into a certain area, it takes actually quite a lot of foresight and I think game intelligence to run away from it, to run out of that area, and to to try and find the space where everybody else isn't. That's just obviously one of the things she does. Obviously, she's she's technically she's great, physically. She's had a tough season, you know. Which she's, she's had, very, very well publicised struggles. But the fact that she's got through ninety minutes suggests that that she's pretty robust in that area as well. But it's it's the way that she manages to think two or three steps ahead of the game. She's got this unbelievable ability to not only plot where the ball is going to be two or three moves ahead, but also where she needs to be, where that where that defender's going to go, and where that space is going to open up. And that's how she manages to find herself in space so often, even against you know, the sort of really tight, deep set defences that, that teams like Northern Ireland throw up. And that's why she's such an asset in games like that. I mean, I have a I have a, a kind of a cardinal rule when it comes to writing about women's football is that you don't compare it to men's football. But in, in this case, I, I do think, like, I can't see a player on the men's side who has the all-round gifts that Fran Kirby does. She's the sort of player we don't like English football just doesn't really produce as a system, but just unbelievably intelligent with all the attributes uh, physically and, and mentally. And yeah, she, she she can be the difference in games like that. And she can be the difference going forward as well.
1: Yeah, I was thinking, as Johnny was talking there, that she's like a snooker player, reading where things are going to be three or four moves ahead, where things need to be three or four moves ahead. Wow. Just such an intelligent player. So likeable as well. I mean, she's been fantastic in the mix zones through this tournament she's always so honest and humble and real real nice person to top it off which is a pleasure to cover but yeah supreme talent i mean i said it i think in the first pod that for me she's the difference of you winning and losing a major tournament of whether she's available and I still think that's the case. Um, and that's the risk when you don't change against Northern Ireland, right, that you pick up an injury. I think we'd all be having a very different conversation about whether it's a good idea or not to make changes for a dead rubber game if there had been a big in- injury. Obviously, that's a big if. But um, yeah, I think it maybe be a little bit of a different conversation, particularly if it's to a player like Kirby. Uh,
0: We are so on the same page, Susie, because I was also about to say snooker player or chess player. And that's a, a footballing intelligence that you don't actually see that much. And I think it's probably why I wasn't a particularly successful footballer as a child, because I just used to run at the ball. There's the ball. Chase the ball. All the time. Two goals from super sub Alessia Russo, including that absolutely sublime turn through the Northern Ireland defence, which I think broke Twitter, Tamsin. But the ball from Elatoon as well has not been getting enough plaudits, in my opinion.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely huge You know, fan of Elatoon. I think actually when we spoke before the tournament, I was really, really hoping for Elatoon to get some time and coming off the back of the season that she's just had. What I really, really like, you know, when those kind of subs come on with Russo and Toon, obviously they're, they're used to playing together at club level, but they're very, very sparky and I think it's very exciting and I like kind of, not the unpredictability about it, because we know they're obviously drilled to, to play in certain ways, but the creativity and the magic that comes with that and then you get goals, don't you, that that, that wow the internet and break it, but also, you know, de- deservedly so. I would like to see Ella Toon get a little bit more time, but... Maybe that's me just being a a little bit selfish. I think she's got a lot to offer, hasn't she?
0: As has Russo, Susie. She was just fantastic. And there are
1: calls, of course, for her to replace uh, Ellen White. What say you? I mean, they're legitimate calls, aren't they? Because she's been phenomenal um, every time she's come on. But at the same time, she's made an excellent case for staying as a super sub. It's a tough one, isn't it? I think It's hard to overlook Ellen White's experience up against some of the biggest teams uh, in the world going into the knockout stage. You know, she's England's top scorer for a reason. She's matched Lineker's record for the 10 goals in major tournament finals for for a reason. So, like, benching her when she's not necessarily underperformed in this competition would would feel a little bit harsh, particularly when Russo's showing no signs of um, sort of underperforming when she enters the fray.
0: Mm, um,
1: I mentioned record breakers at the top,
0: another goal from Beth Mead. She's currently on five. The most players ever scored in a single women's
1: Euros is six. She looks on course to break that, Susie. Surely. You've got to think she's going to break that record. I mean, (laughs) once you get to the knockouts, obviously things could dry up a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, like what an incredible season for Arsenal and then for England as well, um, after the disappointment of the Olympics. Um, and it was funny was after the first game against Austria, when obviously that was the only game that had been played, I joked uh, in the mix zone that she was going for the golden boot and she burst out laughing. And then, you know, three games in, she is top scorer on course for a golden boot. Um, and suddenly the, the the joke is is uh, is less impactful as a joke. Um, her movement is incredible. You know, we, we talk about Alessia Russo as staking a claim for a starting place ahead of Ellen White. But what about Beth Mead through the middle? I mean, that's where she started her career and Arsenal shifted her out to the wing. And that's not to say that she's not performing excellently from the wing. But so often you see her cut inside and... And breakthrough, and you sort of think, well, that's an option there that could be tried at some point if needed. Um, I mean, it's not like you're gonna short of decent number nine, so. But yeah, I think there's a case for it.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you, and uh, perhaps your most accurate prediction so far. <laughs> My only prediction. <laughs> you might be redeeming yourself, Johnny Kenny Shields. Being Kenny Shields, we had him praising Phil Neville. Before this match, and now he seems to be laying some kind of hex on England, saying England are so far ahead of everybody at this time. I have to say, if they don't win the tournament, it would be a failure of the best players.
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't like him, Faye. I don't. I don't know what it is. I, I don't know the guy. I mean, I've not. I've not met him apart from in, in the press conference on, on Friday night, where I, I, I glimpsed him making vaguely, I thought, passive-aggressive statements about how England had to win the tournament, which which was. Unnecessary. i don't. I don't think me and him would get on. That's just a personal opinion.
0: So I did meet him properly one-on-one because I interviewed him in the tunnel after the match. And I, like Johnny, was expecting that I would not get on with him at all. And actually, he was warmer than I thought he was going to be. Anyway, um, as I've said time and again, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, Okay, definitely the more important fixture in Group A was Austria-Norway and a goal from Nicole Biller giving Austria the 1-0 win, which sends them through second in the group. I mean, uh, they would have needed a win Norway anyway to have uh, gone through given their goal
1: difference. But
0: Susie, you had Norway as favourites. What
1: happened? I mean, it all fell apart, didn't it? <laughs> um, I thought they looked very, very tentative and bruised uh, by that heavy England defeat defensively. I mean, it was just more of the same, wasn't it? They just sort of yeah. utterly chaotic at the back, slow. You know, if Kirby is the snooker player reading every every move 10 steps ahead, they couldn't read the move that was like literally taking place in front of their eyes um, and were sort of, you know, three steps behind. It's kind of, <laughs> I think, slightly sad to see a team with so much potential up front not really kind of have a decent crack on goal. Uh, Ada Hegerberg had a few chances, but I mean, to be fair, um, Arsenal goalkeeper Manuela Zinsberger is, is an absolutely fantastic keeper. The most clean sheets in the league last season, great shot stopper, good reading of the game, and sort of dealt with a few of their limited chances pretty comfortably. But yeah, I mean, I shouldn't have written off Austria. <laughs> you know, semi finalists last time round, um, you know, we saw what they did t- to England, and suddenly that 1 0 looks significantly better in the light of an 8 0 and a 5 0 set of wins subsequently.
0: Mm, Tom did warn us that Austria had more than we were giving them any credit for. It feels as if we did underestimate them a, a bit, Tamsin. But a quarter-final match with Germany next—it does seem, bearing in mind our previous prediction, very silly at this point to suggest that they've got no chance here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the opening game was just like a classic opening game, weren't they? Austria were very like technical on the ball, and actually like really enjoyed watching them up close. I like Susie, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit something here, actually. I was scared of Norway. I was very scared of Norway coming, <laughs> coming into this. Um, and when we spoke to our Norwegian expert, he actually did highlight the defence. So, you know, fair play there. I actually found myself trying to convince people in the pub that Norway had some of the best players in the world. And it started to become increasingly desperate, actually, as more and more goals went in. But Germany, Austria, I am scared of Germany. We actually talked about this, about whether they've been underestimated. Germany, I was like, no, at no point did I ever underestimate how how well Germany, I think they're the only team to not concede apart from us and can just fire in goals from all over the place, can't they? So I'm not sure how well Austria will do against that because they've only scored three goals to withstand Germany and then have to go on and score. You know, I'm I'm not sure that they'll get past that.
0: Okay, well, two European championships and two quarterfinals for for Austria, they certainly seem to be getting it right. Uh, But when I talk about people getting it wrong, the question is, Johnny, what happens next for Norway? Because Martin Sjogren came out swinging after the match saying, I put very little into what so-called experts have to say about me. In fact, I couldn't care less, to be completely honest but i mean they are consistently underperforming and surely he can't remain in post for for the world cup next year
2: no and and i think the thing about norway possibly uh, that distinguishes it from a, a, a lot of other countries is, is that there is a kind of continual conversation and discussion over over that team it is a big deal out there how how badly they performed there has been a lot of you know adverse press comment, there's been a lot of pressure in the in the media, you know, there's ex-players and, and, and pundits, and yeah, his, his job will come under scrutiny, because I think if they beat in Austria, if, if they'd managed to come through that, it is easier to write that 8-0 off as a, as a bit of an aberration. It was pretty clear from that game that there was still a hangover, that England managed to open up some, well, not, not only tactical flaws, but some psychological flaws, that they simply couldn't get over and, and might well take a whole new tournament cycle to get over. I was actually, you know, I was wondering what, um, what Hegarisa was doing because obviously she, you know, <laughs> led it, she led England uh, on a, on an interim basis, you know, after, after Neville and, and before, before Wiegmann was able to come in and, and, and you know, did, did a fairly decent job in the, you know, in the, in the Tokyo Olympics. She's now their under-19s coach, I think, Norway under-19s coach. So, you know, if they want someone with tournament experience, who who may already be in a the setup? Then then there may be a handy replacement there.
0: I'll tell you what Hegeris is doing. She's hiding from Beth Mead. Uh, OK, we <laughs> say goodbye fondly to Group A as England finished group winners with nine points, 14 goals, none conceded. Not a bad week's work. Uh, that's it for part one of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. In part two, we'll see how the group of death finished. Today's podcast is supported by Visa, a proud sponsor of UEFA Women's Euro 2022. But Visa are not only backing the highest levels of the women's game, they're also working around the world to help women and girls play football, whatever their age or ability. Today, we're joined by Nazime who took part in a football camp supported by Visa in Turkey. Thanks so much for joining me, Nazime. Uh, that camp that you were part of just sounded absolutely amazing. Can you tell us a bit about what happened on the day?
4: Firstly, it was an unbelievable experience for all of us. And uh, we just went to the camp and do some activities about football and also talk about gender equality for football.
0: As part of that camp as well, you got to meet and and talk to some of the
4: players from the Turkish national team, I understand. What was that like? We learned about their lives, their stories, and it was all uh, like inspirational for young girls to hear. So it gives us a motivation to go on that road. And how inspiring was that for you? I learned so many things about not giving up and it makes me to go on that road and say like nothing can stop you.
0: Just finally, what is your ultimate dream in football?
4: Like I want to uh, study law, so I would uh, go on that road and uh, study uh, sport law and also be a national player of Turkey and also prove that the girls can do everything they want and nothing can stop us. Absolutely.
0: It sounds to me like you can do everything. Uh, Nazme. thank you for sharing your experiences with us. We look forward to seeing you at Wembley at the end of July. <laughs> thank you. I'm so thankful for all of you. Now on with the show. Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Group B also wrapped up last night with Spain beating Denmark 1-0 to secure their quarterfinal spot against England. Not the most riveting game, I think it's fair to say, but we have got our resident Spanish expert to talk us through this one. Hello, Sid Lowe. Good morning. It's too bright and early for you, but I would have thought that you'd have had an early night watching that game last (laughs) night.
5: (laughs) It wasn't the greatest, was it? Um, although it was, it was quite fun watching, uh, watching Harder basically create things from absolutely nothing all game long. The, the Danish plan seemed to be, don't worry, at some stage she'll sort this out. Spain's plan was to kind of go round and round in circles or, or appear to be, although it is true, I suppose. Shall I, shall I defend Jorge Wilder, if only because the whole world seems to be out to get him? Um, <laughs> it was two of his three half-time substitutes that combined for the goal, so maybe we'll give him that. Is that it? Is that the only thing? It, it might be. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought Spain were, were possibly better than than people said in the game against Germany. And I thought there was enough there to believe that... that I know you can't always say, well, if it wasn't for and if this had happened and, and, and ifs and ands and, and so on. But I thought actually the game against Germany was enough to think this is still a pretty good team. This is a performance wasn't as good, I didn't think. I thought it was a performance that looked nervous at times. It was striking that for all of the quality of the way they move the ball, which actually wasn't on display as much in this game, how willing they were, certainly in the first half, to just sling the ball into the box. And they, they seem to have decided we need to mix this up. But mixing it up by just basically putting it in the area isn't, isn't really enough. But they got there in the end. Um, it, was, it was pretty nervy, but they did get there.
0: What What's the reaction been like in Spain to the performances? Were, were their expectations as high as perhaps a lot of ours were?
5: Well, this has kind of been the fundamental theme, I think, and and it, it in my opinion at least, it, it creates debate about how you manage expectation because one of the fundamental theme around the Spanish team going back to pre-tournament. So when the Spanish team got together at Las Rozas and even before that, Biddler has consistently tried to say, "Calm down," consistently tried to say, "Look, there are really good teams out there," but I think the the, the risk of this was that he was actually undermining his own team in in terms of. I'm not saying he did, I'm saying the risk was doing this that in, in terms of saying, you know, we're not favourites. And he said at one point the, the line was something like, it seems as if we're already in the final and everybody is treating this as if we're already there. And I've never seen this degree of pressure put on a team that's never won anything. And we never have won anything. And this is over the top. And the, the, the problem, I feel at least, is that part of this kind of attempt to take the pressure off maybe actually went the other way or too far the other way. Maybe it diminished the idea that actually this is a really good team that could win it. And I'm saying this, obviously, even before they lost Genio de Mosso and Alexi Portejas, because as soon as you lose those two, and it's probably worth stressing this, and I know everyone knows this, but let's put it in very, very simple terms. They lost the best player in the world and the second best player in the world. You do that to any team and you can't seriously ask them to go and then win the tournament.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point. Susie, is what Sid said about managing expectations something that England maybe could and, and need to learn from?
1: To a certain extent, yes, although lesser, because I mean I think the expectations on England are justified, whereas the ones on Spain, I think less so given their like lack of major tournament experience. They're very much, I'd say, you know, a few years behind England developmentally. England are the most invested in team in Europe if not the world I think they might even beat the US for the most invested national team so that comes with additional expectation right and there's the FA set out very clearly in 2017 in their game plan for growth um, which covered every area of the game from like doubling participation doubling attendances but like the major competition element was win either this Euros or the next World Cup or both. Um, you know, that that was the plan. That was the time frame. It was never to win the World Cup in twenty nineteen. You know, that was always seen as um a little bit too soon. But the, the point was to get them competitive enough to be able to compete and win major tournaments by this kind of time frame. Whereas I think Spain are sort of more towards the middle of that journey rather than the point at which England are where you start having the expectations that That start to demand a bit more. But I think they were unfairly overhyped going into this and that put a lot of pressure on a group of players that maybe shouldn't necessarily be expecting to win a major tournament at this stage or a country that maybe shouldn't be expecting that they will be competitive and winning a major tournament at this stage of its development.
0: With that in mind, Sid, how worried are Spain going to be about England or are they actually realistically thinking quarterfinals is is good enough? And are quarterfinals good enough, bearing in mind that that Vilda was given a two-year contract extension?
5: Yeah, and given it just before the tournament. But I think that was partly about a management, if you like, of the expectation and of, of the environments. That was a way of saying, look, the trust is there. You know, don't allow this to be a distraction. Don't allow this to be kind of part of the focus. We do this pre-tournament as a way of saying we're in place. We know where we're going. We know what this is. Now, whether or not it's the right decision, of course, is, is, is another debate. I think in terms of the management and the timing of it, that was it. And, and just just briefly on, on, on what Susie was saying there as well, pre-tournament, talking to Sandra Baños, and, and she used this great line where she said, "But I think people are overrating the Spanish national team because of Barcelona. We're overrated because people assume we're Barcelona and it's just not the same team. Then you only need to look at, I mean, even, even beyond going, going into the questions of the style and so on, you could just look at it in terms of the personnel that if you like the the difference makers at the top of the pitch for Barcelona at least just aren't there with Spain I mean that's that's a, a, a fundamental list of players reality in terms of facing England of course Spain wanted to avoid it I think the defeat against Germany hurt for a number of reasons I think it hurt because of the way it happened and because of the sense that maybe they were on the edge of doing something they'd never done before because of course this is a team that's never beaten Germany so there was a sense that this would be if you like that step that doesn't just beat Germany doesn't just take you into the next round but says okay we've entered into a new reality now and losing to Germany, I think, made everyone think, ah, okay, we're not in that reality yet. Now, again, I still think that the analysis of the Germany game is so heavily conditioned by the terrible mistake at the start that that, that possibly it, it could have ended up differently. And so they did want to avoid England, but it wasn't because the focus was on England. I think at that point, it was because the focus was on, oh, I don't believe it. We've just blown it against Germany, and actually, still might not go through. And it felt to me like it was a little bit over-dramatised going into that final game. Everyone's saying, oh, wow, you know, Spain could go out, Spain have got to beat Denmark, and, and this isn't easy. And yet, you look at it rationally, and, you know, I'm sure we all probably felt this before Tom, it's always quite likely that Spain were going into the last game having to win. And as it turned out, they only had to draw. So they were in an all-right position anyway. And so at that stage, before last night, the focus was really on, do we get through? Now the focus becomes England. And so in terms of telling you the reaction from Spain, it's a bit early for me to tell you that. I can tell you the reaction from the Spanish journalist in the stadium last night, which was, yeah, the likelihood is that England beat Spain in the next round. It's interesting, though, listening to the Danish manager post-game, and he was talking about Spain maybe are the type of team that possibly, if they can get certain elements of their game right, that England will find harder to play against. And he said something which I thought was interesting in the way that he discussed it talked about how one of the hardest things to do when you prepare for a game against Spain is to prepare your players psychologically and mentally for the fact that they're not going to have the ball. So you've got players who want the ball, who are good with the ball, who play with the ball, and you have to basically get through to them. This isn't going to be the way you want a football match to be. And so the other elements of Spain's game may well be weak, but that part of it, you've got to learn to deal with. And and Martina, the Germany manager, was saying this after their game as well. She said, look, I've got players out there who are cursing this because they're not getting the ball. But the reward is that we won 2 0.
0: That's really interesting actually, um, Susie. You you are nodding along with that. And that is something that Serena Vigman talks a lot about, about having possession all the time and being in control. If you've got possession of the ball, you can score a goal, is the way she talks about it, which is, you know, Route One, isn't it? And they're gonna find that frustrating. And I think mentally that's where England are gonna have to show improvements, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I mean Under Serena, they've not often been in a position where they haven't had much of the ball. They've played so many friendlies and qualifiers. The Arnold Clark Cup was an example of of sort of testing them um, in that arena and and they came off okay. If they play. The same way they played against Norway, then they could actually see more of the ball than we expect if they play with that sort of high intensity, that high press, turn over the ball a lot, a lot in the middle through Stanway and Kirby. Um, I, I actually think that they could, like, yes, playing a Spanish team is very, very difficult, but I think they could actually end up seeing more of the ball than than perhaps we maybe expect.
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily assume that spain are going to have more of the ball i think these are the two teams that have had the most possession in the tournament so far i think England something like 60 percent Spain something like 67 and we, we we saw against particularly against against norway and um and northern ireland the ferocity of that of that press the front three putting pressure on you know the goalkeeper sometimes the goalkeeper and the back four and and if if you if you can put that that Spanish back five under under pressure, we saw against against Germany, that you can you, you can get some rewards there. And I mean, the other thing is, this is this is I think the main one like the, the main reason why why not having Pateas and and um, and Hermoso is such a big misfit. them, quite apart from what they can actually do with a football, is that when when you get to the the sharp end of a tournament, it really tests you in different ways. It's sudden death essentially. Processes and plans and systems only really get you so far, and the thing that they are missing right now. We saw it, you know, and this is the sort of, the sort of thing you see in a, in a, a game like like Germany that you don't see against against Denmark, or you don't see in a kind of a six nil friendly win over Australia or seven nil or whatever it was. Is that players like pateas and Homoso, and there's, there's not many of them, who, who essentially say, "I'm not putting up with this. Something needs to change here." Whatever plan or system is in place or whatever the script is, I'm going to change it. I'm going to do this instead. And that's that's what wins you tournament games. That's what I haven't seen from Spain yet. And that's why I think they need to essentially be playing the perfect game to beat England. I, I think it's possible, but they need so many things to go right for them. And I think England have so much more margin for error in that respect.
0: Interesting. Brilliant stuff. Sid. Thank you. As always, you've answered uh, the tweet from Adam looking ahead to the game, which I'll read out in a second, but always a pleasure chatting.
5: Nice one. Cheerio.
0: Sid Lowe disappearing mid-pod, as always. (laughs) So Adam tweeted us saying, should England go all out? high-pressing attack against Spain on Wednesday like they did against Norway, which Susie just mentioned there? Or should they opt for a more defensive counter-attacking strategy that worked against them at Euro 2017 and helped shut them out in the Arnold Clark Cup, Tamsin?
3: I'm a fan of the the high press and you know, if we're talking about possession football and that's for how Spain like to play as well, you know, if we go for the go for the assault and get some early goals, for example, and kind of frustrate Spain out of the ball rather than us being frustrated out of the ball, then that's what I would prefer to see. I much prefer that style of football anyway. I'm not a massive, massive fan of Spain's style of football. So that's what I hope to see from them. And I think obviously it has worked better for us. So Serena doesn't like to change things too much. It, it makes sense really why change something when it's working for us.
0: Mm. In terms of Denmark, though, Johnny, just one goal in at three group stage games. They're just not at the same level they were in 2017, are they?
2: Disappointing all round. I was so disappointed in Denmark. I mean, you, we saw them in the first half, and they were essentially playing a kind of five 4 one with, with with Harder on her own up front. And it was almost as if they they knew that if Spain score, they're just going to knock it around and we're not, you know, we're not going get, to get back in the game. So weirdly, the dynamic for a team that needed to win and was chasing the game was the one who actually were playing with with that kind of fear. And I thought the, the the system was wrong. I thought the approach was all wrong. I mean, how how you leave someone like like Sinia Brune, who you know she plays for Leon, right? You know, she, she's not she might not be a starter, but she's got like some like twelve goals in the last thirteen games. Who we know links up with Harder, and you you have to win that game to get through. Why you're not even? I don't know if there's some kind of injury issue or 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 there's some something behind the scenes, but not even to bring her off the bench it just showed a kind of the lack of ambition. That, that Denmark had and it's all very well saying like we're going to sit in we're not going to have the ball we're going to counter-attack but how many times Denmark counter-attacked and Spain had five or six players back and Harder was essentially on her own and you, you cannot counter-attack with one or two players even if one of those one of those players is Panilla Harder it, it's fine playing that system if you're ready to spring out of the traps and, and, and attack with pace and numbers and just Denmark didn't have those numbers whether it was for physical reasons or whether it was just you know they they were so tired after and knackered after chasing the ball on, on a hot evening, so I, I don't have a you know I don't have a huge issue with the tactics, but the approach throughout the whole tournament has just been so disappointing from them because there is talent in that team. I mean people people are calling them a one woman team. It doesn't have to be that there are there are decent players there, and I, I think they they sort of played to that stereotype slightly. There is there are, there is more potential than what we have seen from them, and that, that, that I think is a big disappointment.
0: Mm. i tell you what wasn't disappointing for the Spain fans, though. Goalkeeper Sandra Panos handing out pizza slices to the fans, having gone and bought pizza from the stadium. Loving that. Now, I'm not sure uh, there were many eyes on this Finland-Germany game, but it did at least throw up an all-time television abbreviation, wonderful, finger, wonderful. Love it. I love things like that. It's just little things, isn't it, in life? Uh, It finished Finland nil, Germany three. Really simple win for the Germans in the end, who like England. Finished top of their group with a 100% record and zero goals conceded. Uh,
1: How much has this group stage been a statement for the Germans, Susie? Oh, huge. I mean, I always expected them to be strong come this uh, competition, despite the sort of slightly flustered... Running, um, they always are, you know, typically brutally efficient. Come the actual tournament, and it, it's good to see Alex pop back and on form. She's missed so much the past season through injury, and then major tournaments through injury. So many major tournaments through injury as well. You know, she was out of the Arnold Clark Cup, for example. I have uh, England Germany final in my head at Wembley which would be quite a special thing. And
0: also means it won't happen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it 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 completely means that. It means they're getting knocked out um in the next game, doesn't it? But um they're they're very, very strong. And I'm a little bit worried about how strong and how organized they are from an England point of view, because no other team perhaps has shown the consistency and sort of has the edge experience wise in the over England in the way that Germany does. The last time they went through a group stage unbeaten, ha- not having conceded, was when they won it in England in two thousand and five. So, yeah, I, I I'm slightly worried by the by the German team. Have they been tested though, Johnny?
2: Uh, certainly, Spain gave them a gave them a really good game. Denmark, as as we've said, were were quite disappointing. Finland's they're they're a they're a quite limited side, aren't they? I mean, they they have pace and that, you know they defend quite well but there is more to come from the Germans I, I think one of the things one of the things I wanted to highlight is that they obviously looked at a at a few different players last night and in, in a way that England who already qualified they named an unchanged side Germany had a, had a look at a few players I think Nicole and and Yomi is it who, who came on and scored the, the third goal like really highly rated I think she's she, she plays for Eintracht Frankfurt she's one to watch They have so many different attacking combinations. And they're also, I mean, Susie mentioned brutal efficiency. They are also kind of just brutal. The way they chopped Spain down and the way they kind of take it in turns to foul teams, essentially, to try and disrupt their rhythm. They are are quite unashamed about that. I think they have more, more fouls and more tackles and more ball recoveries so far than any other team in the tournament, which says quite a bit about their approach. And if they... If if they come up against France, I mean we have to assume they get past Austria. If they come up against France in the semis, uh that that could be one of the games of the tournament because that, that would be a really fascinating clash of style, I think, the way the way French fluency comes up against that sort of German wrecking ball.
0: Yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. Um based on what Susie said about England not meeting Germany <laughs> in the final, uh, do you think Serena can perform a masterclass against them? Tamsin.
3: I am worried about Germany. I've been worried about Germany from the start. Um, I, like I said, I absolutely love the German style of football. My concern is also that Germany can just score from anywhere. Johnny, I think you just said to me that they like have so many different attacking combinations, and it can literally come from anywhere on the pitch. And if England haven't been fully tested to find those weak spots, I do, I do trust the German side to be able to find them uh, where they do exist, um, and to be able to, you know, carve teams up. But I do think that England are resilient enough. I think, you know, the three different kind of games that they've had to play in the group stages, I think has prepared them. You know, they've, they've scored early and had to hold on. They've been absolutely rampant. They've had to break down a team that they would have expected to break down sooner. So I do think that they have had to problem solve. And, you know, as long as they can keep that resilience and they can not become frustrated for the younger players in particular... I think that they can do it. I do think that there is enough in there and I do think the players are enough of a team in England to be able to do it. But obviously, Germany at Wembley in a final absolutely terrifies me and I will leave if it goes to penalties and wait outside. <laughs>
0: well, listen, don't worry. It's not going to happen. As I said, all of all of Susie's <laughs> predictions are pointless. So. Susie's kiss of death <laughs> yeah, we've listen, we've got rid of the group of death. Let's keep the death theme going. And we now have Susie's kiss of death. Oh dear, morbid, morbid pod. Uh, right, Group A and B are done and dusted. We have our first two quarterfinals set. England facing Spain on Wednesday in Brighton and then Germany playing Austria at Brentford on Thursday. It all feels extra serious now, doesn't it? Uh, who are you all looking forward to in particular, Susie? Oh,
1: obviously the england spy game. Um, it's going to be really interesting for all the reasons we we said a minute ago with Sid how England handle the passing game of Spain and the possession-based game of Spain and whether they can counter that but also just dominate it I think is is the exciting question that is the game to watch purely because of the form England are in at the moment Johnny?
2: Yeah, I mean I'm kind of interested to see what happens when the two halves of the tournament kind of kind of meet each other because it, it's it's been it, it does feel a bit like a north south tournament. You know, all my uh, London based friends have been going to Brentford and, and taking pictures of like Germany and Germany and Spain and whatever. And meanwhile, there's this kind of parallel tournament taking place in much smaller stadiums up in the north, where you know equally good players are are playing in front of you know much much smaller crowds. And I don't know who's, who is who is. Who is in charge of leveling up this tournament? So I, I, I think there's been a yeah, there's been a, a weird divide between the top and bottom halves, and we, we obviously we're obviously going to see that kind of shake out in the next couple of weeks. So yeah, that, that's the that's the amazing thing about knockout football. It throws up matchups and ties that that you want to see basically, and you know whether it's France against Holland, France against Sweden, those are going to be really really mouth-watering games coming up in the next few days.
0: All I've got in my head is the Spice Girls when two become one.
1: <laughs> I can't get it out now.
2: Really underrated as well. Really underrated. Yeah.
1: I had Game of Thrones stuck in my head. So I was thinking, are we underestimating the Starks of the North? <laughs> and,
3: uh... <laughs> Brilliant. Always, always underestimated, always overperformed. There we
0: go. <laughs> go on, Tamsin, what are you looking forward to?
3: Yeah, obviously, I mean, I'm looking forward to to the England game. I think... I do have some of the hang-ups that we talked about with Spain just because, uh, you know, if you turn it up, it is a little bit dangerous, isn't it? And it's a little bit of an unknown quantity at this point now without those kind of star players. And like uh, Johnny said, it's it's a sudden death, isn't it? And it it feels a lot more serious. I have actually been a little bit... uh, maybe this is controversial being a little bit underwhelmed by Sweden and Netherlands as well but then if we kind of forget about them is that when they turn up in the in the knockouts and maybe that's not so much what we want them <laughs> getting onto a little bit of a good form going forwards but i do like to keep an eye on germany sorry that's probably very unpopular and i'm probably going to be kind of blacklisted now from uh, from england games moving forwards
0: no, you're not blacklisted. You're not blacklisted. Um, Karen is a big Poppy fan. Um, I forgot to say to Susie, she's not allowed to call her by her full name of Alexandra Pop. On this podcast, she's only known as Poppy. Uh, right. It's been an absolute pleasure. Tamsin, awesome debut.
3: Thank you very much. Yes, I'm I'm sad though my husky uh, voice seems to have disappeared as we've gone through the pod. So, you know, sorry about that, guys.
0: No, I love it. I loved it at the start. I love it even more now. Johnny-loo, I mean, you were average. Let's, let's just say that. We'll take that. <laughs> Susie Rack, I'm going to put in an order for a football-related cake, but it's got to be gluten-free. By the end of the tournament, I promise I will return your charger from Switzerland in exchange for a, a fantastic baked cake by your fair hand. I feel like that can be arranged. Wonderful, I'm very excited. That's it for today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. We'll be back on Tuesday as we find out who's booked their place in the last eight from Group C and D, as well as looking ahead to England's quarter showdown with Spain. The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly is produced by Lucy Oliver and Jesse Parker-Humphreys, with additional help from Silas Gray and George Cooper. Music composition was from Laura Iredale, and our executive producers are Chessie Bem, Max Sanderson and Danielle Stevens.
3: The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa.